Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shiv. I'm Zach. And we are very excited to have Cameron Munter joining us here today. Pleasure to be with you, and please call me Cameron. Uh, Cameron is a president, is the president and CEO of the East-West Institute in New York. Uh, he served as a U.S. Foreign Service officer for nearly three decades in some of the most conflict-ridden areas of the globe. He was ambassador to Pakistan from 2010 until 2012, including during the operation against Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad. He was ambassador to Serbia from 2007 to 2009, where he negotiated the Serbian domestic consensus for European integration and also managed the Kosovo independence crisis. He served twice in Iraq, leading the first provincial reconstruction team in Mosul in 2006, and then handling political military affairs in Baghdad in 2009 until 2010. He's also a PhD and taught at the University of California, Los Angeles, as well as Pomona College from 2013 until 2015. Let me add, that was my most dangerous assignment, teaching at Pomona from 2012 to 2015. Really? But I did survive. Excellent. Well, yeah. we'll have to ask you about that. Right. But thank you again for, for joining us, Cameron. Um, so one of the first questions we like to ask our uh, interview interviewees is about the concept of inflection points, a point in their life where they've had to adjust or make a pivot in their professional or personal life, a defining moment for them, really. Could you share one or two of those with us today? Let me uh, add, first of all, great to be back here in Claremont, and thank you for this opportunity. Uh, in the Foreign Service career, inflection points are kind of built in. When you think of the, the, the way someone develops in the Foreign Service, uh, you think of a, an organization that doesn't do much training. It's an organization that admits people who are fairly competent, but when they're in, they're not really taught how to grow inside the organization. So you have to find an inflection point at the correct time, and that which you're good at that got you so far doesn't help you anymore. Let me give you the examples I use. Mm -hmm. When you join the Foreign Service, you really have to be obedient and you learn how to follow the rules. You're in a big hierarchy and a big bureaucracy. Then, once you're 10 years in, if you're still being obedient, you're no good, and you're not gonna be, mm. you're not gonna be successful. You have mm. to learn creativity. So somewhere along the line, you have to see that inflection point. No one tells you. Mm -hmm. You have to see, all of a sudden, being obedient's not enough. If I'm gonna be good at this, I have to color outside the lines, if you will. And then you go along being creative, and then you realize, most foreign service officers are basically have a 20-year career. And if you want to make it to the senior level of the foreign service, there's another inflection point. You have to learn how to be a leader. They don't teach you leadership. Mm -hmm. You have to figure out who are the people who I've worked with, how do I see what they've done, who are the leaders that inspired me, and become like that. And those people, the 30%, 20% who are left in the foreign service, become the ambassadors. Mm -hmm. So the answer on inflection points is, Inflection points are not always sharp breaks that you recognize. There's a trend that you realize, I've done something well enough for long enough, and yet if I'm going to do the next step of what I've got to do, I've got to realize that that's not enough. That's, that's really, really interesting. Um, you, but you said that no one teaches you that. How did you learn to um, make those changes? Did you have a mentor? Or that's basically through mentoring, and yeah. that's, that's why it's so important that you have the kind of relationship that you you wouldn't understand what a mentor is. It's not necessarily someone in a position of authority literally over you, mm -hmm. but someone who you really admire and want to emulate or someone who you think is awful and you don't want to emulate. Mm -hmm. And what you learn in the Foreign Service very quickly is what the examples are of people who are either very successful or not successful. 
And you find out very soon that as you're looking for assignments in the Foreign Service, you know, you're moving on every couple of years, you have a choice. You can go to a place, hmm, I want to go to Paris. Or you can say, Ambassador X in Madagascar is a great ambassador and I'll learn from him. And I would argue, go to Madagascar. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to enjoy the people and enjoy the lessons that you're learning. And you simply learn this by talking with people and by intuiting. That's the way to, to, uh, to be successful in a foreign service career. Now, you were talking about how you uh, had to learn in your foreign service career. But going a little bit back earlier, you started off as, as teaching European history in UCLA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so academia, how do you trans or what was that transition and what was the learning curve from academia to foreign service? I'll be honest with you. I was not the world's best academic. <laughs> I stayed in graduate school for a long time, in part because at that time, back in the 70s and 80s, you could. You didn't, you know, you, there was, I didn't feel the pressure to move on. So I was in graduate school in many ways because I was curious and because I wanted to learn different ways of thinking. And when I got into academia, I realized I'm not that great at this. What can I do where I can continue to learn and to adjust and to find different ways of thinking? And I was drawn towards diplomacy. You're always dealing with a different culture. You're speaking Chinese for three years. You're speaking Spanish for three years. You're speaking Polish for three years. You're learning a whole new set of cultures, a whole new set of things to eat, a whole new group of people who you're dealing with, and a whole new set of historical problems. Mm. I realized almost subconsciously that I needed, I wanted to continue that process and have a career where I could do it. And I was lucky enough to find one so that instead of being a break from academia, it was for me the only way I could continue to be intellectually curious in the way that I had been before. I make it sound like it was simple. It wasn't that I didn't know all this was going on, but that's the way it, in retrospect mm-hmm. that it looks. Yeah, it seems it seems incredibly complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and along with the theme of learning, um, if, as you say, like you have to move on every three years, um, and and often from total from one culture to an entirely different culture. For example, mm-hmm. you were in Serbia and then you went to Pakistan, and presumably those don't have a ton of commonalities between them. Um, well, they, they both countries are fairly violent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Um, how do you make that transition? How do you ingrain yourself and learn about the culture um, to fully, you know, pursue your role as an ambassador? It's a very tough question, and some people do it well, and some people don't. I mean, it's you. You have to have an attitude that you are uh, representing. You believe in kind of representing the United States. You believe in America as a country that uh, represents not only our interests but our values, Mm -hmm. something that's just very important at least to inspire me to be uh, a diplomat in different places. And then to say, I am going to adjust the tactics, the craft of what I do, but I'm not going to adjust the the fundamentals of what I believe. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I just felt that it was very important that to be a good diplomat, you have to really figure out how to reach out to other cultures to understand the way people think, even when you disagree very profoundly with them, mm-hmm. so as to be able to get your idea across and to communicate their ideas honestly and as 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 usefully as you can back to Washington. Mm-hmm. So in answer to your question, how do you make that jump, you basically keep a certain part of yourself in line, the things you believe in, the things you want to do, and you then open yourself up to all kinds of different tactics of learning how different cultures work. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, I spent a lot of time in a place like Poland having a drink of vodka with Polish diplomats because that's what they do. 
Well, you don't drink vodka with Iraqi diplomats. Yeah. So you had to find different ways of doing that. Mm. You spent a lot of time drinking tea. You spent a lot of time talking about different things. But you're doing the same fundamental task. You're trying to understand them. You're trying to communicate as best you can. Mm-hmm. And were there any surprising commonalities that you found? Uh, like, I mean, drinking vodka, drinking tea, um, things like that that you wouldn't have expected that people did? Well, it is interesting that there are basic cultural things that people take very seriously about themselves. Most countries are very proud of the cultural characteristics. Most cultures, they're, uh, they're, they're proud of these characteristics. They see themselves as being, say, a country of poets or a country that is very hospitable or a country that is... Uh, where music plays a huge role. And so that cultural background that some see people see as kind of soft power and kind of secondary is actually quite crucial mm-hmm. in understanding how do you get through to people to understand what motivates their political, their diplomatic desires. Mm-hmm. It has There's an element here of fig- figuring how do you learn to respect people who are different than you. Part of it is by seeing where they're different, trying to understand it, but also trying to figure out what the analogy is to what you all have in common. Mm. So if Americans are proud of the fact that McDonald's is a place where anyone can get the same meal for the same price, it's kind of an egalitarian institution. Sure. Um, I'd never thought of McDonald's like that. No, but you know, people in, in, in uh, Europe who I knew who were cultural snobs would say, yeah, McDonald's, you get the same thing every time. How, how gross. Poorer people in Europe, especially minorities in Europe, have always told me what I love about McDonald's is that it's not snobby. They treat me as a Nigerian the same way they treat you as an American. Mm. And that's what I love about America. Okay, now you see this, you see how food plays this incredible role in understanding people's sense of self-worth or humiliation or motivation in politics. And I'm using food or drink as an example, but there's any number of things you can look at. Mm -hmm. You can have an entire career thinking about the throw weight of missiles or about um, the structural school of international relations and all the theory you want. But ultimately, when you're overseas, you're dealing with people and you're trying to figure out what is it that lets them become human to you? What is it that allows you to become human to them? Now, um, along the same similar vein of how diplomacy works, um, I like to talk about the concept of how diplomacy changes with different Mm -hmm. administrations. And I know a lot of people have said that we are entering a new era of diplomacy with President Trump. Um, And I'd like to ask, is there any validity to that? And how how does diplomacy change with different administrations? Well, I would argue that diplomacy changes regardless of administrations. It's changing all the time because of the broader changes in society. You call them globalization if you want. You can call them economic change, social change. And the biggest change that's taking place is the kind of spread of diplomacy beyond what we call a Westphalian diplomacy. Westphalia is kind of the the term people use loosely to describe the system of diplomacy that's government to government. I work in an embassy. I'm accredited to this country, and I represent America in, say, China. And the Chinese diplomat has the same rights in America. This is where diplomatic community comes from. It's that veneer of civilization that you try to put over international arguments, right? Mm -hmm. That system, I would argue, is changing and is continuing to change in the 21st century so that it's important, but it's not enough. It's It's not sufficient to deal with issues such as, say, climate change, which go over borders, go beyond governments. You've got to have the diplomacy of business, You've got to have the diplomacy of people, of of cooperation in crime, uh, 
in uh, international law enforcement or international intelligence in the cyberspace, for example. Or you've got to have um, the other, you've got to take into account the other players in diplomacy, like institutions like universities or nonprofits like the East West Institute, where I work. You're dealing with a broad array of diplomacy, different players and different problems. And it's a kind of diversity, which is not kind of a diversity where you say, oh, isn't it nice we're all different and we're doing things? No, there's such a diversity of ideas, such a diversity of players, that if you're not aware of that diversity, you as the diplomat are gonna, not really going to solve a problem. Mm. So you can say perhaps there's a new era with Donald Trump. And again, there is a new style with Trump. Mm -hmm. But I think the diplomacy, uh, the, the, the changes in diplomacy are much bigger than just the change in administration. Now, that's an interesting point. You were talking about all these non-state actors who are mm -hmm. playing a role in diplomacy. Um, they obviously have an impact, but would you say they're beginning to have more of an impact than, let's say, state actors? Or how is that dynamic working? In some cases, they do. Uh, think of things like international trafficking in narcotics or wildlife or, or timber and things like that, the blood diamonds, these kinds of things. Those problems the results of an ever-opening economy and a wide-open set of, you know, globalization themes become more and more difficult for governments to deal with. You can't say, um, I'll give you a hypothetical example. Let's say there's thousands of islands in Indonesia and there's a government in Jakarta that doesn't really know everything that's going on in every island. But there's some oligarch who owns a bunch of land, and he's doing illegal harvesting of timber, and he's running that island. You can go, you can say, that's very bad, and you can go to the leaders in Jakarta and say, stop that. Maybe they're not powerful enough to do it. Maybe you, as a diplomat, whether you're an official diplomat or an unofficial one, maybe you have to talk with an oligarch. Maybe your partner isn't a diplomat. Maybe if you want to get something done, you have to deal with people who you would say, well, he's a criminal. We shouldn't deal with him. So do you want to call him a criminal? You want to solve the problem. And that is a real challenge to traditional diplomacy because you're going beyond the traditional rules of legality and illegality. But what do you do when uh, efforts to cut the drug, war, the drug trafficking from Mexico haven't worked or from Afghanistan? What do you do when they haven't worked? Did you try new kinds of diplomacy? That's something that we at the East-West Institute explore. Yeah, and let's talk about that work a little more because yeah. it's, it's really actually very fascinating. You practice um, what's called Track 2 Diplomacy at the East-West Institute. Can you give a, an idea for the listeners what, what that is? Well, we do Track 2 and other things. Okay. I'll begin with Track 2. Track 2, if you call Track 1 the negotiation of government to government, this would be Henry Kissinger talking to Joe Enlai, mm -hmm. right? That's Track 1. Track 2 is where people who are not official representatives of a government but who have certain ties to governments and to other people who are leaders talk about solutions, but they aren't um, committing a country to an agreement. Mm -hmm. So if East-West Institute talks with representatives of different factions in Lebanon, we can talk about a number of, of suggestions for how a certain crisis can be over, over one, but the government's of Lebanon or the United States or anyone else aren't bound by that. Mm -hmm. But they can say that's an interesting idea and 
you can give signals that it's a way to try to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, people talk about track 1.5, you know, people who are partly governmental and partly not governmental, and it gets very, very tricky. But it's assumed to be quiet diplomacy that's, uh, that uh, explores problems in difficult ways but doesn't bind a government to going along with a decision. Mm -hmm. Now, at East-West Institute, we don't just do track two. Uh, when we're dealing with something like cyberspace and issues like that, we're very much out in the open talking with a lot of different people mm -hmm. about such things as norms in cyberspace. Okay. One of the arguments I'd say about conflict possibility in cyberspace is that there aren't enough rules. There aren't conventions about how you act. Mm -hmm. So we pull together uh, governments, law enforcement officials, intelligence officials, businesses, um, and NGOs, trying to figure out what can we agree on? What's the common ground? So what we have in common, both in the back channel, which is quiet, the, uh, the track two, which is quiet, and maybe the convention, which is out there in the open, is we're trying to find common ground. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can find it noisily. Sometimes you can find it quietly. Yeah. But we're always looking for the kind of common ground and trying to figure out what's the, what's the wedge in which different countries or different problems, different groups can talk. Mm -hmm. The third element of this is trust. That is to say, you can have common ground, but if you have someone like Kim uh, Jong-un in North Korea, who no one seems to trust, how do you come to an agreement with this guy? Right. So part of what we do is simple trust building, trying to figure out how do you get to know people over time and have a track record of being reliable, keeping your word, and not being threatening to that person. Mm. So we do that as well. Long-term strategic relationships, Problem solving through back channel, track two, and doing conventions of norms. How do we get people to find common ground? Mm -hmm. And is all of this, um, is, are you uh, paid contractors by the government? Is this directed by the we, government? We don't take any government money. Okay. So we, we don't work. We work in a small island off the coast of North America called Manhattan. Okay. Right? Right. So we have a certain amount of distance from Washington, and that's on purpose. Mm -hmm. We're an American NGO. But we don't work for the Americans. We have okay. a board of directors, people who oversee us, who are more than half um, foreign, sure. Chinese, Russian, uh, uh, Indians, Europeans. The point that we have is that we are trying to serve as a global um, uh, uh, convener of people. Mm -hmm. We are not an advocacy group saying, we have a bunch of, of, of solutions, take our solution. Mm. It's up to others to come together and make solutions. That makes us not really a think tank like, uh, say, the Brookings Institute right. or the Carnegie Endowment. They have smart guys in the basement who write books. These are the five steps you should take in order to get rid of nuclear weapons. We don't, we don't advocate. We don't say that. We say, it's up to you, Mr. Erdogan in Turkey, to decide if you want, with our help, to talk to your neighbors mm -hmm. and try to solve problems. So that in this sense, we're not taking a strong moral position other than the morality of communication. So, I mean, what, what term would you give um, yourself? Are you a vigilante? We're, Are you we're, a facilitator? We're, we're, net, we're a network. Network. We're a network. We okay. pull people together and sure. we facilitate. We're privately funded, okay. right? So we don't work for a government. And we uh, have to, we spend a lot of time simply building trust with people. Mm. And that gets back to what I was telling you about, you know, how many glasses of tea do you drink or how many mm -hmm. steaks do you have? Mm -hmm. A lot of trust building is spending time with people and having them realize about, about your character and who you are. Mm -hmm. 
And that, I would like to think, the 30 years I spent in the diplomatic service taught me that I can deal with a Pakistani, I can deal with a, uh, you know, a Brazilian, mm -hmm. and try to find where the common ground is. That's the practice I have. But I would add, in the people who we have in our network who do our negotiation, many of them are not professional diplomats. Most of them are not professional diplomats. Mm -hmm. We have guys from Silicon Valley who think outside the box, and we bring them overseas to have meetings, and sure enough, they come up with creative ideas. Mm -hmm. That's what we try to do, is to, uh, to allow people in a trusting environment to come up with solutions that then they can accept. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners would be very interested to hear about your perspective on the night of May 2nd, 2011, when Osama bin was killed. Um, what was your role as ambassador to Pakistan during that conflict? Well, I've got a nice long story I could tell, but I won't, I won't tell you that in the, in the interest of time. But you know, my role was basically um, uh, to make sure that the Americans who were in the country were safe. I mean, I was not involved in all the cloak and dagger. I was fortunate enough that I knew about the impending raid, and I got to watch it in live time on a screen in the embassy. But the main thing I was concerned about once the raid was over and was successful was to make sure that if there was a reaction in Pakistan, that the Americans would be safe. There had been an instance in 1979 when the Grand Mosque in Mecca was attacked by uh, extremists and uh, in that part of the world, a lot of times rumors about uh, conspiracies go around. And so it was blamed on the Americans. And so in 1979, our embassy in Pakistan was burned down and American diplomats were killed. So um, we didn't know if that would happen again in 2011. So we had every American who lived in the country that we could get our hands on, not just the diplomats, but the other Americans living there, coming into the embassy and uh, to the consulates in Karachi, Lahore, and Peshawar. Uh, trying to make sure that there wouldn't they wouldn't be um, uh, wouldn't be harmed. When the when the morning broke, uh, there weren't people with torches coming after the embassy. There was nothing that happened, which um, led me to conclude, among other evidence, that despite the fact that most people assumed that the Pakistani authorities knew that Osama bin Laden was in their country, I concluded they did not know. Mm. Uh, there's no evidence in the intel that I've seen that they knew. And this is counterintuitive, but uh, we came away from that thinking they didn't know that he was there and that what they responded to in the weeks that came after in their anger against the United States was their case that the Americans had violated the uh, sovereignty of Pakistan by coming in and doing the raid and not telling them. Right. And they have a point. Yeah. Well, we'd, we'd love to hear the longer story, but unfortunately, you have other commitments. Um, we want to ask one final question, sure. which we ask to, to all of our guests, and that is, what is your personal definition of success, and what advice would you give to college students or anyone um, seeking to pursue their own definition of success? It's a very tough question, because there is a very specific uh, career path that diplomats follow. Right. And so people become very enamored with the idea of getting to a certain place at a certain time, promotions in a military sense, moving ahead. And yet, uh, I know this sounds very Californian, but I'm allowed as a native Claremonter, yeah. I'm allowed to say, um, you have to make that decision yourself what you want mm -hmm. success to be. If you believe that you um, know exactly where you want to go and you're in a in a in a uh, hierarchical situation that you can't control, the chances of you being able to get there are minimal. 
That is to say, if you if you set your heart on something in the Foreign Service, it almost certainly won't happen. But if you like the process of living in a world where you're meeting interesting people and you're curious about the world and you're a patriot and you care about the values of your country, you're almost guaranteed to win because wherever you end up is going to be pretty neat. Mm. So I came into the Foreign Service, and I'll tell you, if you had asked what is probably the most unlikely thing that will ever happen to you, it was probably being ambassador to Pakistan. Yeah. I never went to Pakistan before I became ambassador, mm. right? Yeah. I was chosen for other qualities to go there. It was not something that I wanted to do in the sense, or not want to do. It, it was something that was an enormous opportunity for me. And because I had followed a career by being curious about the world and being committed to certain values, I was able to do that. So my advice to people, unsatisfying as that may be, is look hard inside yourself. What do you like to do? What are you good at? What makes you happy? When you do that, you are much more likely to be successful. People will want to work with you. Mm. And that success, whatever form it takes, will come to you. Mm. It's not the magic it's not the magic trick to become an ambassador, yeah. but I think it is the magic trick to becoming happy in what you do. Mm. It's great advice. Um, unfortunately, that is all the time we have to, today. Uh, thank you again, Cameron, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.